Joe Kane. I'm Dan Kane. I'm Sal Conca. And I'm Wayne Heckler. And this is the Imperfect Podcast. Don't forget to go to hecklercane.com and sign up to become an Imperfect Podcast Insider. Do the bumper. On this week's Imperfect Podcast, we talk to producer, editor, and director Gavin Michael Booth. He's best known for the horror film The Scare House, which is now playing on Showtime. We met him a few weeks back at the AFM, American Film Market, and he was gracious enough to come on our show and give you a little insight on how he snuck into the film business. Without further ado, this is Gavin Michael Booth. Gavin, welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. I know we met you at AFM uh, a few weeks ago. How was AFM for you? Was it success? was it a success? It was it was good. I'm never I'm never like a regular attendee unless I have something to sell. I'm kind of in between films right now, so it's just a lot of uh, you know living in Los Angeles now. It's just a, a short drive to get there, so mostly just sort of setting up meetings with folks and uh, going to hang out at some of the cool parties. And you know where we met, somebody put together yep. that uh, meet all the horror filmmaker party. Mm-hmm. I thought you know it's it's nice when people just have that sort of general spirit of wanting to wanting to meet everybody else in their in their field and. Usually those are the cooler parties. They're less pretentious. You know, meet, meet a lot of people with like-minded attitudes that are just trying to make movies and survive. And, you know, right. you, you never know. It's all, it's all future collaboration, right? You never know who you're going to meet or, or who you're going to work with next. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah that's what we went. Uh, that, that was Sean. Sean, who's trying to get his uh, movie together called... Sean uh, Crane. Uh, twisted. twisted the movie. <laughs> yeah, Twisted the movie that he's trying to put together. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so you've had a, a pretty interesting career um, from music videos to feature films and all that stuff, but let's go back a little bit. Um, you're in Canada, born and raised? Yeah, uh, born in Windsor, Ontario, which is right on the border with Detroit, Michigan. Oh, okay. Cool. When I tell most people that, they go, oh, I said, no, no, like literally there's a tiny river that divides the two countries and cities. Yeah. I've wow. seen that little bridge, right? There's like that little... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then what got you into film at that point? You live in there. Well, I'm, I'm going to throw a question out before you even get to that. Sure. Indiana Jones and the Lost Remote Control. <laughs> wow, you guys did your homework. Where <laughs> you would have found that. Because that's, um, that's, uh, that's from what I get is your very first... Uh, um, it was ongoing. There. That was, you know, back in, the, back in the day, I used to deliver newspapers to the kid and you know, slug it out through all those Midwest winters uh, so that I could save up and buy a, a VH, a JVC VHS camcorder because I wanted to run around the neighborhood and make uh, make movies with my friends. And that's before I even had sort of like two VCRs to connect together to edit. So everything was edited <laughs> in camera. Yeah. So I really kind of learned early to, to shoot the minimum amount of footage and get everything right the first take because, you, you know, the most you could do was rewind it and hope you had it at the right spot to start again. <laughs> Uh, one of my still one of my best friends to this day is a guy named Eli Parent who lived a couple of houses down from us. We we lived in like the perfect suburbia. We were on Boardwalk in the Monopoly subdivision. All the streets from the Monopoly game were represented, <laughs> and we would just run around. Everything was parodies back then. It'd be like Friday the Thirteenth Part Twenty Five. <laughs> uh, you know, we we'd lay somebody down in a fire pit so their legs could be in the fire pit. We could make it look like he's running them over with the lawnmower and just, you know, squirt, <laughs> squirting ketchup up from behind it. <laughs> nice. Indiana Jones and the Lost Remote. Yeah. It was always some, some parody of the things that we loved. So we'd nice. be like, well, we can't afford to build a grail. We don't have anything cool. Let's, uh, 
what what do we have that we could lose? Ah, oh, the remote. What do you, <laughs> you know, the remote, you can't watch TV. So, you know, what, what adventure in a neighborhood could we send somebody on? So it's usually my little brother that was forced into playing all these roles, you know, very reluctantly. I don't think there's a filmmaker out there that can't relate to that, right? Everybody's right. everybody's made that attempt at putting. I can relate to losing the remote, <laughs> yeah. and I can relate well, I to the to the big VCRs. Remember, the camera came with the VCR; you had to attach it. So you're That's filming, holding a big I, camera, yeah. right? That I was got, a mission. I get, I get the next the next generation. I just had my own shoulder mount thing. <laughs> I right. actually just recently found that the one that I used the first time I ever touched a camera was. Uh, Fisher Price made a little kid's camera. I don't know if you remember this. It's called like the VX200 or something, but it used audio cassette tapes to record a black and white video image. I had the Panasonic version of the same exact camera. I had I, somebody just uh, a couple of years ago found it digging out digging out their basement and said, "Isn't this the first camera that you ever used?" And they gifted it to me. Cool. But I still have that. Just, I, and I actually kind of want to. I want to get it touched up and buy some audio tapes to actually go shoot a music video on it or something. Just see <laughs> see how terrible it is, or see if we can't find a way to make it creative again. You know, hey, that's Lots awesome. Millimeter film and stuff. I thought oh, I'll go with that. You know, if nothing else, I'm sure we can get Fisher Price to tweet it for us. <laughs> <laughs> see, always thinking. A true writer, director, creator. Good work. <laughs> so where did we go from? Uh, <laughs> kids found footage movie on it or something like look we just found this from our from our childhood never realized there's a demon in every shot nice <laughs> you know it's funny i used to tape over my films all the time my older brother had the first camera uh, and uh, tape was expensive back then so you make yep. movies and you always think you could do better like hey let's tape over that forget that one man let's do this because you know you're limited to the amount of f- film you buy so i remember those days but hey you know you keep doing your thing it's pretty cool Oh yeah. Hey, filmmakers still do that because that's called like. What do we really need three backups of these hard drives for? So, you know, <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a much sadder modern version of that happening where they go like, "Oh, five years from now, we haven't plugged these hard drives in in a while, and they're dead." <laughs> <laughs> so where do you go from being the the lighthearted child filmmaker? Um, how how do we? How does your career progress? Do you go to film school? Um, what was the path? I wanted to go to film school. I've been looking at, uh, there's a university in Toronto, which is Toronto's a three hour drive from where I had grown up. And I looked at, uh, UCLA and and a few, you know, AFI, a few schools out in Los Angeles, definitely couldn't afford the LA schools being an international student. Mm -hmm. Uh, my parents were getting divorced in high school. Money was tight. There wasn't going to be a lot of sort of family help for university. So if I was going to go, uh, I was going to save up for myself, so I went and worked at Walmart for a whopping six months as a, as a department manager for uh, the garden center, <laughs> and and uh, ended up pulling a hernia there because it had rained one night. And I don't know if you've ever lifted like a twenty pound bag of peat moss. Yes. <laughs> well, when it's got a few holes poked in it, it's rained the night before. That ends up being about eighty pounds. Yep. So if you're not aware of that, and you just go to pick it up, put it in somebody's trunk. I just whoop, that's it. And have a hernia. <laughs> Was yeah. off on a medical leave, and they, they, you know, Walmart just, you know, rightfully so and legally just wouldn't allow me to come back until it was fixed. And that was sort of a long wait for that. And I was kind of like, well, I'm not making any money. How am I going to save it from film school? And I had a few friends that were doing wedding videos and a few local TV commercials. I thought, well, maybe I'll just buy some gear and start doing that while I'm waiting for this. Uh, you know, if I'm sitting on my ass all day long, I can do that and edit at the same time or, you know, hold a video camera. It's not going to, not going to kill me. 
and and that just kind of took off and i never i never looked back from there and you know that's so that's going into like early 2000s so you know only years before my my last year of high school was 96 or 97 and i you know that's around the that's the the kevin smith rise and the mm-hmm. rodriguez mm-hmm. you know coming out of it but Brothers McMullen with uh, Ed Burns, you know the guys that figured out, oh, you can take twenty five thousand dollars and go, go make a movie, you know. And of course, you just put it in Sundance and you win, and your life changes forever. <laughs> oh, the lottery ticket—that's how it works. You know, I, I'll do that. I'll, I'll go make, I'll go make a movie for twenty five thousand dollars. Fully aware that if it didn't turn out, I would, uh, I would at least probably learn by failing. So that became the path, and I forgot all about film school. And plus, I was never a very good student in terms of paying attention or handing homework in on time. I always had elaborate excuses for why things were delayed. You know, I, I would, I would cheat the postal system. Uh, I had a girlfriend, <laughs> um, mother who worked at the post office in my town. So I would, you know, no, no, no teacher. You remember you said we could mail it in over the Christmas break. It had to be by this date. Well, I'd have her go back stamp the registered mail thing and, you know, ship it in. <laughs> and the teacher would be like, well, I think you're lying. We just get, and then it would show up and she'd be like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so I just learned to procrastinate and was not going to be very good for, for school. And so I made a movie called Leaving Town. Uh, I co- co-directed and co-wrote it. I thought, you know, I've never even made a short film at this point. Mm-hmm. I should probably not attempt to make a feature without any experience at all. Mm-hmm. So I found somebody else who had equally zero experience, and we uh, we decided to team up. <laughs> and it was uh, you know, it was kind of hell on earth. It was a shit show, but we uh, we finished it, and that's when it became important to realize, you know, your first film might not be the best thing. It might not even be a watchable thing, but it's a thing that you finish from start to finish, yeah. mm-hmm. and you learned all the steps. You learned all the uh, personality traits of dealing with crew and what it really means to be a director, to be a producer, how to work in tight budgets. And, and ultimately I think also just making that first film, if you really want to be a filmmaker or if you, you know, just want to dream about being a film, I always say there are people that want to make films and then there are people that want to be filmmakers. And there's a lot of them where they want the, the, the what they believe is some kind of prestige and award and celebrity that comes with it, but they don't actually want to do the hard work of making the film. You know? <laughs> yeah, and so, social media has only spun that out of control. There's a lot. There's a lot more of that than, right. than not. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I hear. I hear that 100. percent And and learning from your mistakes and being able to accept you know failure as well as success is a huge deal for filmmakers. And that's why so many of them. I mean, I, you maybe they make one film and you never hear from them again, right? Because they couldn't deal with uh, the consequence that their whatever they made was not good enough, or it didn't get accepted by an audience, or didn't win an mm-hmm. award. You know, or, or didn't get distribution. So um. there's a there's a filmmaker on YouTube. I watch, he, he does a lot of these like top ten lists or, or just little short documentaries on pop culture. But uh, I've subscribed to his channel. His name's Austin McConnell. And just a few weeks ago, he put out a video called uh, it was something, I'm paraphrasing, but it's like I made a movie and it sucked. <laughs> and a half hour self video essay of him being brutally honest about his process of making his first film. You know, he was. I forget where he grew up, but Midwest somewhere, he, you know, he made two or three short films. He won a handful of small film festivals. And he's like, this is it. I'm going to make my, my, my feature. And he just honestly goes through every step of, of how he failed at it and, mm-hmm. and all the, the lessons learned through it. And I thought, one, like kudos to him for being so – actually, he, I, I'm kind of hurt. I never heard back. I emailed out because I was yeah. like, I think it should be shown in film schools everywhere. Like this is, this is a great piece. I've been telling every – 
filmmaker that I know to, to watch it because I think it's a real honest look and, and can serve as a, especially anybody starting out, as a, as a lesson of like, look, this guy lays out all the pitfalls in a very simple, short way. Watch this before you, you know, drain your <laughs> bank account and, uh, you know, buy your Sony A7S or whatever and make try to make a movie. <laughs> right, right. For sure. So after your first uh, film there, what you got into music videos and working with uh, bands like Third Eye Blind. But I know there's an interesting story kind of behind how you met them and how you got involved with them, right? How much stuff is on the internet? My God. <laughs> we, we, have, uh, we each have our own list of like crazy crap oh, wow. we found about you. <laughs> no, you know why? Because when I found out, I said, see, that's cool. Because he's always thinking, he's like, how do I get in there? How do I do this? So it's like you had the passes, right? Backstage passes, you started going in, then he liked your I, shit. You became, yeah. you know. Do we not want to talk about this? <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, it's we could edit that out right? <laughs> if you want. No, no, no. I never know. It's perfectly fine. I mean, I didn't, I didn't tell the band for a couple of years af- afterwards. They just <laughs> legit thought that I was a real right. media person. Uh, that fell into their lap. No, I, uh, you know, living living on the border with Detroit. Detroit had all the great concerts. They had the bigger concert venues. It's, uh, you know, it's it's Detroit Motor City. It's, it's Detroit Rock City. Uh, so I would go see a lot of concerts there and I just started thinking, well, you know, there's like in Canada, the main media is the, the CBC mm-hmm. and then there's some lesser known ones. This, this, my hometown news was called the A channel. Uh, so I think it was an A channel pass. It might've been CBC, but either way, I, I laminated used to make my own fake media card <laughs> and just show up in Detroit and say, Oh, I'm here to, here to interview the band. I'd have a microphone in one hand and a camcorder in the other, nice. not even a, a great camcorder either. You know, so <laughs> should have bought it. But every once in a while, somebody would like, you know, well, you're not on the list. And I'd say, well, you know, I got to get this back to the TV station for like the 11 o'clock news. And <laughs> nice. they, they would buy it and let, and let me in. And sometimes it meant I would just be allowed to film the first three songs and then leave. Sometimes, yeah. you know, I get ballsier and say, well, you know, can I get an interview with anyone from the band? And uh, <laughs> you know, Third, Third Eye Blind was one of them. And it's, uh, you know, to that, that, that started a whole trend for me of you know sneaking to, to everything if you're not really breaking the law if you're not really causing anybody trouble the worst they're going to do is say no mm-hmm. so it's the same philosophy is is, is dating you know right. ask, <laughs> ask the person you want no matter how really you think they might be because the worst they're going to do is say no or you know if they tell you to go after yourself well then that's a cool story too you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly uh and that you know that worked out they re- they really like my work and even their singer and I became friends and, and he started inviting me to, to work with the band more. And around the same time, maybe six months later, he was producing a record for his then girlfriend who was uh, the piano player and singer, Vanessa Carlton. If you remember her, she had yeah, that yeah. a thousand miles. Yeah. I would say it's on every time you walk into a CVS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They were universal records and A&M records were looking for somebody to shoot a documentary about the making of the album because they were going to put that. That's when they were trying to save the music industry. Like, Oh, if we put a DVD with every CD, then people won't download it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my first trip out to Los Angeles and to work in the music studios. And that was then in several different cities. So I just kind of on and off for six months, followed around, followed the whole process of making the album that a whole bunch of insane people. I never thought I'd meet the guests, guest played on the album and and uh and got to put that dvd together and you know it blew up and sold all over the world and that just started leading to more and more opportunities in the music industry um so then eventually a local band said hey can you shoot a music video for us and i also never say no I said, yes <laughs> no, of course 
but I'll, you know, when do we shoot in two weeks? Okay. I got two weeks to learn everything about how to, how to sync music, music video and, and make this work. Uh, but yeah, a lot of it is just never saying no and figuring out how to, how to maximize the, the most of every opportunity. I mean, I, I met my wife's into the Toronto film festival as well and do a party. I've sort of learned every, every trick to, and I, that's why I don't buy a pass to AFN anymore. It's almost not fun if I get invited anywhere. <laughs> it's more about what's there. And like, I just, I just have this like thing in me now where I only want to go to the parties I'm not invited to because they're the ones I feel like yeah, there was, there was a challenge to be in here. So there must be something good behind this door. <laughs> Do you want to come to this? No, you're not allowed to come to this. I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why didn't you guys invite me to your birthday party? Because Gavin, we figured you would figure it out and just be there. <laughs> you should know better. Hey, so tell us about on the live broadcast that you did. The Which Periscope. The, live, the Periscope live, live uh, movie broadcast. Um, yeah, that kind of, that happened very rapidly. I had, uh, my friend Tanya Betancourt, she's an actress out here. She was the one who introduced me to Periscope. And that would have been probably September August or September of 2015. And I had never, you know, the Facebook Live didn't exist yet, which has become obviously, the, I think, the most popular version of it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Periscope was owned by Twitter. Anybody who has a cell phone can turn it on and suddenly they're broadcasting live. And you, you see it a lot where it's people at concerts sharing things or people that were already blogging, like makeup tutorials and stuff, figured out instantly how to, how to make that work as part of their brand. And my, my wife, Sarah, who, who's an actress, has said, you know, she's produced some, some theater and she said, you know, you could like, like, you don't even need an audience anymore for theater. You could just like broadcast it live over something. Like they make it so easy that you don't need all this infrastructure. Anyone with a cell phone is their own broadcast network. Mm-hmm. And I had toyed around with some ideas of like, how can we do like a live music video? Like, what could we do that's cool with it? And then I was kind of like, well, somebody should do like a Blair Witch thing, like a found footage thing with a, with a live. I should make something with this live <laughs> thing. Right. There you go. It all, it all happened that morning and I call my, my manager, Gina here in LA. And I said, listen, I had this crazy idea, some sort of short film with live. Maybe it's a serial killer who's broadcasting his murders. Maybe something terrible is happening, but we actually do it live. We never tell the audience if it's fake and just see what happens. Mm-hmm. And I said, I feel like I, said, I could go do this tomorrow, but I feel like if we got a brand partner on board, then we would have their audience or we could do something a little bit better with it. And she, one of the clients that she manages is the star of a lot of the, the Insidious films for Blumhouse. Sure. And she said, well, let me reach out to Jason Blum and the people of Blumhouse and see what they think. Um, and the audience, if you're not familiar with Blumhouse, it's every horror movie you've watched in the last three years. It's Get Out, The Purge series, Paranormal Activity, mm-hmm. um, Happy Death Day that's in theaters now. And so we reached out to them and they were really excited about it and really supportive. So we, you know, we were eight weeks out or six weeks out from uh, Halloween at the time. And we said, well, the perfect time is to do this a couple of days before Halloween or maybe right on Devil's Night. And uh, that was it. We, we wrote the little script. It was, it was 20 minutes long. It was called 15. And the idea was a serial killer who's stalking Los Angeles. And this is supposed to be his sort of eighth night of terror. So there have been seven other broadcasts. The setup being that when, when it starts, He's in his car stalking a neighborhood. He's actually listening to a radio report of, about himself being live. And it's almost like the uh, uh, name's failing me, the bad guy in Speed, Dennis Hopper, when he when he hmm. sets off the he says, ah, interactive TV, Jack, wave of the future. Yeah. You know, he sort of 
he starts his broadcast and the radio starts talking about him. He's like, look at this. I have everybody sort of in the palm of my hand. And, uh, you know, his sort of rules are that he's going to um, kill somebody in 15 minutes if the police don't find out where he is, which also opens it up to the viewers because Periscope, as people comment on the video stream, it's popping up on the phone screen. So our actor who played the killer, Neil Napier, uh, was also the cameraman. He held the camera the whole time, did his own camera work, and he was able to read the comments coming in and interact with the audience sometimes. So anybody who didn't think it was live, mm-hmm. they'd be like, oh, this is enough and real. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, well, I'll kill your family next, Superman, <laughs> three, five, four, whatever. Nice. whatever there's happening. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it ended up being very, very well received. We had tons of viewers, uh, you know, the filming. I'm curious there, there about that. I'm curious about that, like the process, like what was the viewership like and was there money behind that? Like, is it more of a cachet piece or is there a business behind that? I know Periscope itself, you know, it doesn't, yeah. it's not so hot anymore, but like, do you see that model? You see people on Facebook live that may, is, is it something that could be monetized? It was, it was interesting. We, you know, we didn't even look at a monetization model. It was just one of those things where it's like, you know, if we do this, we'll be the world's first. So mm-hmm. what's more, let's just do something fun. Let's do something the world hasn't seen before. And if we're asking people to pay for it, it's going to take away from the reality of, of people believing, you know, what I like, I, I'm obsessed with found footage. I had a found footage script about a shooting in a high school that was picked up by, uh, People from Lionsgate, it was picked up from Mel Gibson's Icon Productions at one point. It had a bunch of, but it always got put into into um, development hell every time there was a real-life shooting. Uh-huh. So that's with, uh, with found footage movies. And I think when they're done well, they're they're done excellent. So I thought, how can we, let's let's not try to brand it. You know, we were already doing it on, on Blumhouse's Periscope page. So anybody, you know, shit, anybody in the film world would know that it's fake right away. But, you know, Blumhouse, to us as, as movie fans and filmmakers is is just synonymous with horror film to middle America, to the rest of the world. They, they don't always pay attention to what production companies, what, and who, you know, they don't even know who the, who the director of major films are half the mm-hmm. time. It was just something where like, Oh my God, what am I watching? And people are calling them saying, turn this thing on right now. It's, it's live. So we don't, we don't know the exact viewership numbers, but, but Periscope was very good to, uh, they actually tore the video down right after a broadcast because they were getting calls um, oh. from, from people saying, there's a murderer on Periscope. Like, you've got to kill this stream, you know? <laughs> yeah, right, uh, right. So we talked to them. Once they, once they knew all of that, they were very cool and, and told us how much they loved it. And, you know, we had other ideas for, for streaming. So I think there, there could be a way to monetize it. You know, I, again, I think where it works great is there was a – I forget what the platform was called, but musicians would do – live broadcasts or acoustic performances and you paid like five bucks to get in to the room. And if you like things, you could ask them questions. And if you like the performance, you could tip, you could add extra money to tip to the performance kind of thing. Cool. But you know, I, I think there's ways to do it, but again, it's, it's, it's harder and harder to get people to pay for anything entertainment wise. Yeah. You know? yeah. Of course. Like, somebody complains, like, Oh man, Netflix is going up to $13 a month. I'm like, <laughs> I would two rentals and I had to drive through the snow and almost die to get there. <laughs> right. Like, and then you know, return like, them late <laughs> and pay again. <laughs> hey, so what oh, you know, I mean, honestly, the only thing I've ever won in life is beating blockbuster when they disappeared and yeah. I didn't have to pay my late. 
There yep. you go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, which brings um to um Scarehouse. It's funny because you talked about found footage. One thing I liked yeah. about Scare uh, Scarehouse is because it uses that technique kind of right to tell flashbacks, but it uses the video, and it was done very well, by the way. Thank you. That was done completely. Uh, that found footage element of the movie did not exist when we finished shooting the movie. Hmm. Originally, the entire movie took place in the present, on the night, inside the scare house. Um, and I guess I should just say, the scare, you know, the scare house is a movie about two girls that open a Halloween fun house for the specific purpose of inviting people they have a grievance with down so that they can, you know, get some pretty sadistic revenge. But with that, we finished the movie. Uh, Universal Studios was already our partner to release in the U.S. and a company called D-Films in Canada. And, you know, we, we watched a rough cut screening. They rented a theater. We had a little... Uh, proper test screening, uh, not test screening, I should say, just um, the people involved in film. And, and they said, they kind of came back and said, wouldn't it be great, you know, we had some extra money, we did something, would you be open to shooting like almost like a prologue scene that shows all of the girls the night of the incident? Because we see their, their bloody, you know, bloody, dirty best version in this film, but we never see them when they were like beautiful and friends and we, we think that maybe that could really enhance the story. And it was uh, it was a good creative process because you know a lot of times you you hear oh studio notes they're the worst they try to make your film you know the worst thing possible and I said yeah I'm totally open to that uh, my wife and I were taking the vacation the day after so we we left it was probably January I think I think it was early January and went sat on the beach for a few days and I just kind of I said you know what there's other things in the film I'd like to change or maybe we can make more clear so if I like cut a few sections out where I just feel like it's too much talky talky. Maybe we can, uh, go back and, um, shoot these camcorder things. Maybe instead of doing just one thing at the beginning, I could shoot events from the night in question and, and make it, you know, found footage because they could have brought a camera to this hazing ritual. They could have had a cam Everybody's got a cell phone. Mm -hmm. If I can work it in, maybe I can get all the cast back and we can just squeak it in and afford it have one day or a day and a half to shoot all this stuff. So that's what we put together and brought all the cast back six months later. And that's the only day that all of the cast was together. Wow. Because when we shot the movie, you know, it's always sort of the two uh, protagonists and their, their current victim or maybe four mm -hmm. of them at any one time, five at the most. Um, but yeah, to get all eight of the girls together, that was the, the only day that we had with, uh, with all of them basically. And one of them had moved to Ireland. So we had, to, it was a lot of finagling wow. to get everybody back. So it was, it was, it was really fun because we shot the day after the Oscars that year. So it was in February that we did the reshoot and, uh, you know, everybody came back to Windsor, Ontario where we shot the movie. We all went and had dinner together, got to watch the Oscars together, mm -hmm. you know, have a little fun night and then, then jump back in. And, and I, you know, I shot all the found footage stuff myself. Um, I, I can be a cinematographer. I don't ever qualify myself or say I'll, I'll be a cinematographer for anyone else. But for something like that, where I know exactly what I want, and I only kind of have one day to get it. It felt, it felt perfect. Just pick up the camera and, and shoot that kind of run and gun style. Cause again, I do not like found footage when it's obviously a huge studio camera and the lighting's perfect. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's, only, there's only a handful of movies that have done it right where you're like, okay, I can really believe that I'm there and this is happening. Sure. So what was the process like in getting that movie then picked up? It sounds like you already had a deal with NBC Universal, right, to have it produced. So did you sell the script first and then get the budget for the film? Or how, you know, how did that all work in terms of getting it, it produced? 
So it was, uh, you know, that my school shooting movie had uh, sort of, God, I can't say, every time I just want to say the script was killed or what, I can't say it. It was, it was stopped, mm-hmm. disrespectful of all the real school shootings, but there was uh, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting and the Batman, the Aurora Theater shooting yep. that happened mm-hmm. in the year 2012. We were supposed to film March 2013, but with those two events, um, the Canadian government that was putting some money in through some grants and our distributor, everybody got really nervous about, cause we were going to try to market this film. Like it really happened. Like have that whole Blair witch thing of like, mm-hmm. this is, this is what it would be like to be trapped inside of a school shooting. And everybody kind of got walked away from that. But our Canadian distributor said, you know, it's not you that we don't like, and we still love this movie. We just can't make this movie. It's just, you know, we, we can't even probably can't even put it in theaters in America anymore because of what happened in Aurora. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'll get eaten alive by the, by the press. Um, so they said, give us something safe, give us something that won't, won't be problematic. And, uh, that was December, 2012. So I, you know, my wife and I got married that Christmas. We took a honeymoon. I just kind of took three or four months off, which I, which I never do. I'm always busy working, doing something. It was just a bad movie. I, the school shooting movie I've been chasing for about five years of on and off deals and hadn't made a movie. And just kind of sat, sat down and we went out for lunch one day and I said, I have this idea. It, it was originally guys. It was like a fraternity. It wasn't even girls. I said, maybe we'll make the sequel about girls. So I said, I have this idea. They opened a Halloween fun house. And it's somewhere between like Saw and Mean Girls or, or you know, <laughs> Saw and, or Hospital and Mean Girls. And we'll, uh, we'll do that. And they said, that's amazing. What's it called? I said, Scare House. Everybody pulls out their phone and goes like, there's not a movie called The Scare House already? They're like, register it right now. <laughs> and uh, we're off to the races. So because I already had the relationship with them mm-hmm. and with the Canadian government for the grant money, a lot of movies in Canada are funded in, in part by the government. They have a really good uh, tax credit and grant system for Canadian filmmakers. Uh, everybody was on board to do this. We were making the movie for under a quarter million dollars. So it was, it was pretty simple to put it together. That was May. I pitched the idea. I didn't even have a script yet. Wrote the script quick. We were shooting in August. Uh, and our Canadian distributor had an output deal where they could take two Canadian titles a year and have universal releases. So we sort of had all that set up, uh, before we went to camera. Awesome. Very cool. I, getting away from Scarehouse, I do have one question for you. In 2006, now I've jumped back <laughs> because I found a piece of information here that I need to know the answer for. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and it, like it's I've diary. seen parts of this. <laughs> well, we're sort of reading. Her, I did not grab her rear end. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> about. <laughs> uh, Especially now, right? With these. Well, going yeah. on? the question is: You made a list of 14 people that you have to meet, and um, it was how many days? Um, oh yeah, that was, was pretty a, cool. Yes. Was a, a video blog that you were releasing on a daily basis, um, yeah. trying to meet. Now I never found out the end of this because I guess I lost <laughs> it somewhere in, in translation there. Uh, but there were you. You actually met like Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino, Ellen DeGeneres. I watched, I watched the interview. Yeah, I watched. A, I watched a couple of them, and and I. Did you meet your full list? And if not, not are you still doing it? Not Steven Spielberg. No. Yet, no. Right? <laughs> I'm 75 years old and I'm a hologram now. I'm going to meet these people. <laughs> That's great. No, I, uh, so the project was called How Many Days? And again, this was trying to be an early adopter to YouTube. It was 2006 or seven. 2006 was when YouTube was released. So it was 2007. I thought, well, how, what can I do with this? What, what would be fun? And I had just seen a uh, movie called My Date with Drew where a guy said, like, I'm going to just like 
do everything I can until I get a date with Drew Barrymore. That's a little stalkerish and like it ends up being kind of charming by the end of it, but I wanted to do something less aggressive and forceful. And I thought, well, what if I did something where I said, I need some motivation to pick up my camera and shoot something and edit something every day and sort of almost hold myself accountable to make movies. I thought, well, what if I did a daily video blog where then I would be forced to be creative because I don't want every blog to be me sitting on my ass not achieving my dreams. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of had this idea. We'll call it how many days. I'll pick the 12 people that inspired my career the most. And the way that it will work is I'll post a video every day, but I can't aggressively pursue their management or agent. The idea is that whoever is watching, if you happen to be watching, if you know anybody who knows somebody who knows somebody and you like this, please pass it on and we'll just see organically how long it takes, like six degrees of separation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, foolishly, I said, I'll do this every day. Hmm. So for 2000 days, so roughly five years, Christmas, birthdays, if I had the flu, if I was directing a music video, I still had to make a video blog every single day. Um, and this is before everybody had a weekly blog. This is before you could monetize things on YouTube. This is before there was VidCon and all these ways to, mm-hmm. to make revenue from it. Um, I, I started this project, but one of the rules was if I missed a day, I had to, I had to quit. I wasn't being genuine. Nice. So after day 2000, 2001, I missed a day, but it was only because I had become so busy doing music videos and other things for my career that I missed it. And I thought, well, I'm going to be true to it and wrap it up and, and uh, be done with it. Uh, and then suddenly it was like, what else can I do with how, all of this free time? That I how many I on your list of 12 did you actually get to meet? I think the final number was six. I did about half of them. Half of them. Uh, band Jimmy World was on there. Like Everybody was on there for a very specific reason of what had inspired me. It wasn't just like, oh, you're my favorite actor. It was very personal right. to like the types of films, the types of music videos that, you know, I had seen a documentary about Jimmy World where they, their most famous record, they had just been dropped by a record label, and their most famous record, uh, they self-financed. Even though they'd just been dropped by a label, they said, screw it, we're going to raise money and, and do the next one on our own. And that became their their huge thing that, that launched them to the world. So everybody, everything was sort of taken from, from the idea of like the people that I was inspired by their careers and the types of films and things I wanted to make and just thought it would be fun. If they said yes, you know, and I don't, I don't know if some of them saw it and just said, "Screw that guy, that guy's an idiot." I'm not gonna. Or, but the ones, the ones that did, like Kevin Smith and, and Tarantino, like, and it all kind of happened in weird ways. It, it, what was interesting is the people that I met along the way that had that were just random YouTubers that that watched that had become dear friends or people that I've collaborated with, or, or even now the Kevin. Most of them are sort of set to private. Not the whole thing is out there anymore, but. You know, some of the interviews like the Kevin Smith one, you know, I still get emails once a month or so from somebody that saw it and then went and checked out my work and usually a college kid asking for advice on, on filmmaking or so it's, it's kind of it's kind of fun. And it, it, it really I, I, I mean, I love I love the interactiveness of, of YouTube projects when people do them kind of right. We're actually working on a follow up to uh it might not be with Blumhouse, but we're going to we're going to do a follow up thing to the Periscope movie and just try to make a much more interactive uh, project. Nice. So what is, what is next for you? Is uh, other than that, is there, are there any other, uh, films or anything else everybody should go look for or where can people find you to find your work? You, uh, you guys have any money? You want to, you want <laughs> personal Kickstarter? And we'll <laughs> now, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pitching a few new features right now. I'm going to do a really super low budget indie, uh, drama in the new year. 
I'm going to shoot it back home and going to self-finance it. It's, uh, it's basically, it's a, it's a super drama about a couple the night before their wedding and coming to the realization that maybe they don't even know each other and should they, or should they not go through with the wedding when they sort of learn some absolutely horrible crap about each other's past. Mm -hmm. Um, so it all takes place largely around one hotel room and one sort of banquet hall. Uh, and I actually made it as almost like a student film back in the day. Operation, and, uh, I noticed one. Go ahead. What's that? Operation White Cake, right? Did have any inspiration no, that, from that's, that? That's different. That's uh, right. That's, but uh, did it inspire Oper- it? Operation White Cake is my uh, is my best friend Sean Lippert. He actually built. He owns and runs the Scarehouse Windsor, which is the haunted house that we filmed the movie inside of. Uh, so that's like an operating, like, you know, sort of kids and family attraction every every Halloween season. Not after they see and the in movie. 2000, <laughs> 2011, he threw a surprise wedding for his wife. So meaning she showed up thinking she was going to a dinner event with a friend. He was there, proposed to her, and I said, oh, that's not all. We're getting married right now. I picked your dress. I picked your bridesmaids. I picked everything. You know, like no no man on earth has that that level of uh, balls to you know <laughs> plan his wife's wedding. But it went off swimmingly. He was my best friend. I, I reluctantly agreed to film it because I hate wedding videos more than anything in the world. <laughs> and it, it ended up being pretty pretty damn charming. So I I left early that night. I stayed up till three or four in the morning and made a little like seven minute highlight thing of how it all happened and. Um, I posted it on YouTube and I put it on his Facebook page and said like, congratulations, Effer, have a great life, you know, <laughs> like, and went to bed. And yeah. like, so I woke up at 11 the next day because I'd, I'd been up so late and my phone was like, missed call, CNN, missed call, NBC, missed call. Like, I'm like, what is happening? Yeah. I started listening to voicemails like, hi, we saw your video. And so I like grabbed my laptop and I opened it like 78,000 views in like six or seven hours. And then wow. I called Sean and his wife Colleen. I'm like, hey guys, I got other like they're on our front lawn. Fox News has a truck on our front lawn right now, and <laughs> it had just gone super viral and, and ended up blowing up everywhere because apparently no man in the world had ever like thrown the entire. You know, they'd done surprise proposals and things, but nobody had done that before. So just by fluke, this video that I made just for my friends ended up becoming a huge viral sensation. It was on Good Morning America, and awesome. you know. Late night hosts were making jokes about it. We got wow. flown to New York so that they could do talk shows. And they're on the Ricky Lake show in L.A. and a bunch of weird stuff that came out of. Uh, so, again, just that power of viral video. If you, if you, if you hit something that people, people are looking for. But uh, no, my, uh, the movie I'm making would be the op- basically the emotional opposite of that. Wait, story. wait, before you say, I just want to say over two and a half million viewers at this point. That's crazy. Over two and a half million for that. That is good. My first wedding video. Yeah, you, don't, so, you don't know how yeah. many you don't know how many calls I got to do people's wedding videos after that. Like, <laughs> no, I don't like. I'm not doing no. it. Done. <laughs> trying to be a legit filmmaker. Stop calling. <laughs> so I'm sorry to interrupt. Now go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Go go into how, what you're oh, really yeah. doing now. Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna make that movie. There's a couple other things on on the horizon, but uh, nothing nothing sort of locked in stone as as goes the slow process of filmmaking. And then kind of always music videos, you know, I've got, uh, uh, you know, Third Eye Blind, who I still work with, they're, they're recording a new record right now, so I'm sure there'll be something in the new year. Uh, we did a couple videos together last year. There's an artist called Simmel, 
Uh, I just directed his latest music video that's about to hit 8 million views, I think. He's a brand new artist, but really taking off. And I've already shot his second one, that, which is a uh, horror theme that deals with uh, sort of 1600s witches in a way that I haven't seen before. And we're about to shoot his third video in December. So yeah, there's always always music videos around. And, and then, you know, just the more I live in L.A. and meet people, there's lots of short films. I'm kind of... I get bored, Nancy, if I'm not doing something. So sure. I'll pr- produce for people, I'll edit other people's short films. Uh, you know, my, my wife's an actor and a stunt person, so we just kind of every once in a while like screw it, let's go, let's go make something. We're, we're we, bored. We didn't mention her great acting in that film. Actually, she yes. was in your film, Scarehouse. Yeah. Yes. Very well done. She had to audition like everybody else. It wasn't <laughs> pure nepotism. So she actually auditioned to play the uh, the character of Lisa, who's the one who's sort of like. Hands hands the hands their ass to the two the two leads and almost manages to uh, yep. save the day. She wanted to play that role, but uh, between Universal and D Films, they came back and just said, "No, we think she'd be better suited for the lead character." I said, "Well, she's not gonna she's not gonna <laughs> say no to that." <laughs> um, yes, yeah, no, Sarah. You know that was her. Sarah and I made a film together. Uh, maybe about six months before that, we made a short film called "The Hell with Love." That we just were like, yeah, we got 300 bucks in a, a free night. Let's get some friends together and make this little horror film. Because we had never, prior to being married, we had never worked together uh, uh-huh. on a film. Mm-hmm. So we were like, let's let's do a short and see if we love working together or hate working together. Because we don't want it to cost our our, our marriage, you know, <laughs> like on of a course. film set. Right. Crash and burn. So, so after that, it was great. So And she ended up doing so much work on Scarehouse. Uh, she, she was essentially the casting director because being... In Canada at the time, sort of part of the, there's like a youth council for, for actors there. She sort of knew right away, like, oh, these would be the people that we should call in to audition. That would be great. Um, she would scrub toilets between between takes on sets and between scenes because we were shorthanded on PA some days. Like, so really, you know, helped in every aspect of it that eventually earned a, a producer credit alongside, you know, the, the two main producers. Awesome. Uh, and, and she loves she loves being behind the scenes. So yeah, awesome. And yeah. Since, since we moved to LA, she did American Horror Story. She was on uh, Law and Order SVU, and just like everyone else, waiting waiting for the next gig and cool. away. Nice. Well, well, we'll link to her IMDb page in the show notes as well for everybody. Um, you know, Gavin, this has been awesome. Really loved chatting with you. Um, is there any like final parting words in terms of like advice to beginning filmmakers that want to get into the biz? Anything you recommend other than crashing, uh, crashing parties? <laughs> what else you got? <laughs> I, I think the number one thing is to just keep creating content. Do whatever, whatever camera you have, whatever script you've written. Don't you don't fall into the excuse of I got to wait till I can afford a red cam. I got to wait until I have this. I got to wait until I have that. Make whatever you can now. <laughs> Learn from those mistakes, you know, like just evolve, just keep making things. And because, you know, every short film festival, every short film you make and go to a festival, you're going to meet two or three other people like just make something. But if you sit and wait, life passes you by, you will never reach your goal. And you, you know, you, you don't even know how many opportunities you're missing by not just putting yourself into that creative realm and into that network of people and if you if you just create content, you instantly become a leader that people will look to and want to collaborate with, which means when you're ready to make your first feature or, or if your goal is television, whatever it is, everything is a little easier if you just plus all of the experience. There's nothing tops experience. So mm-hmm. my, my goal is to constantly create things and just throw it away. And if it, if it works, great. If it didn't, don't 
beat yourself up about it. Go make something else right away. Awesome, man. That's perfect advice. I couldn't agree more. Gavin, thanks for uh, coming out, and I'm glad you showed up at that indie horror meetup and came on the show. I'm, hey, I'm glad you were on that patio as I finished the last bite of my sandwich and said, hey, that guy's talking about film. I'll talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Why not, right? Nice. All right, See, guys. I crashed my way. I crashed my way into this podcast too. He's good at this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you kidding me? He slipped me a twenty at the. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it was a pleasure. We do wish wish you future success. So thanks for being Thank on with us. So much. Thank you.